Section 3 of Signs of Change by William Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Deborah Brabin. Whigs, Democrats, and Socialists. What is the state of parties in England today? How shall we enumerate them? The Whigs, who stand first on the list in my title, are considered generally to be the survival of an old historical party once looked on as having democratic tendencies, but now the hope of all who would stand soberly on the ancient ways. Besides these, there are Tories also, the descendants of the stout defenders of church and state and the divine right of kings. Now I don't mean to say but that, at the back of this ancient name of Tory, there lies a great mass of genuine conservative feeling, held by people who, if they had their own way, would play some rather fantastic tricks, I fancy. Nay, even might in the course of time be somewhat rough with such people as are in this hall at present. But this feeling, after all, is only a sentiment now. All practical hope has died out of it, and these worthy people cannot have their own way. It is true that they elect members of Parliament who talk very big to please them, and sometimes even they manage to get a government into power that nominally represents their sentiment. But when that happens, the said government is forced, even when its party has a majority in the House of Commons, to take a much lower standpoint than the high Tory ideal. The utmost that the real Tory party can do even when backed by the Primrose League and its sham hierarchy, is to delude the electors to return Tories to Parliament to pass measures more akin to radicalism than the Whigs durst attempt, so that, though there are Tories, there is no Tory party in England. On the other hand, there is a party, which I can call for the present by no other name than Whig, which is both numerous and very powerful, and which does in fact govern England, and to my mind will always do so as long as the present constitutional Parliament lasts. Of course, like all parties, it includes men of various shades of opinion, from the Tory-tinted wiggery of Lord Salisbury to the radical-tinted wiggery of Mr. Chamberlain's present tale. Neither do I mean to say that they are conscious of being a united party. On the contrary, the groups will sometimes oppose each other furiously at elections, and perhaps the more simple-minded of them really think that it is a matter of importance to the nation which section of them may be in power but they may always be reckoned upon to be in their places and vote against any measure which carries with it a real attack on our constitutional system. Surely very naturally, since they are there for no other purpose than to do so. They are and always must be conscious defenders of the present system, political and economical, as long as they have any cohesion as Tories, Whigs, Liberals, or even Radicals. Not one of them probably would go such a very short journey towards revolution as the abolition of the House of Lords. A one-chamber parliament would seem to them an impious horror, and the abolition of the monarchy they would consider a serious inconvenience to the London tradesmen. Now this is the real parliamentary party, at present divided into jarring sections, under the influence of the survival of the party warfare of the last few generations, but which already shows signs of sinking its differences so as to offer a solid front of resistance to the growing instinct which on its side will before long result in a party claiming full economical as well as political freedom for the whole people. But is there nothing in Parliament or seeking entrance to it except this variously tinted wiggery, this harlequin of reaction? Well, inside Parliament, setting aside the Irish party, which is, we may now well hope, merely temporarily there, there is not much. It is not among people of wealth and local influence who I see are supposed to be the only available candidates for Parliament of a recognised party, that you will find the elements of revolution. We will grant that there are some few genuine Democrats there, and let them pass. 
But outside there are undoubtedly many who are genuine Democrats, and who have it in their heads that it is both possible and desirable to capture the constitutional parliament and turn it into a real popular assembly, which with the people behind it might lead us peaceably and constitutionally into the great revolution which all thoughtful men desire to bring about. All thoughtful men, that is, who do not belong to the consciously cynical Tories, i.e., men determined, whether it be just or unjust, good for humanity or bad for it, to keep the people down as long as they can, which they hope, very naturally, will be as long as they live. To capture Parliament and turn it into a popular but constitutional assembly is, I must conclude, the aspiration of the genuine Democrats wherever they may be found. That is their idea of the first step of the democratic policy. The questions to be asked of this, as of all other policies, are, first, what is the end proposed by it, and secondly, are they likely to succeed? As to the end proposed, I think there is much difference of opinion. Some Democrats would answer from the merely political point of view and say, universal suffrage, payment of members, annual parliaments, abolition of the House of Lords, abolition of the monarchy, and so forth. I would answer this by saying, after all, these are not ends, but means to an end and passing by the fact that the last two are not constitutional measures, and so could not be brought about without actual rebellion, I would say if you had gained all these things and more, all you would have done would have been to establish the ascendancy of the Democratic Party. Having so established it, you would then have to find out by the usual party means what that Democratic Party meant, and you would find that your triumph in mere politics would lead you back again exactly to the place you started from. You would be Whigs under a different name. Monarchy, House of Lords, pensions, standing army and the rest of it are only supports to the present social system, the privilege based on the wages and capital system of production, and are worth nothing except as supports to it. If you are determined to support that system, therefore, you had better leave these things alone. The real masters of society, the real tyrants of the people, are the landlords and capitalists whom your political triumph would not interfere with. Then as now there would be a proletariat and a moneyed class. Then as now it would be possible, sometimes, for a diligent energetic man with his mind set wholly on such success, to climb out of the proletariat into the moneyed class, there to sweat as he once was sweated. Which, my friends, is, if you will excuse the word, your ridiculous idea of freedom of contract. The sole and utmost success of your policy would be that it might raise up a strong opposition to the condition of things which it would be your function to uphold. But most probably such opposition would still be outside Parliament and not in it. You would have made a revolution, probably not without bloodshed, only to show people the necessity for another revolution the very next day. Will you think the example of America too trite? Anyhow, consider it. A country with universal suffrage, no king, no house of lords, no privilege, as you fondly think. Only a little standing army, chiefly used for the murder of redskins. A democracy after your model. And with all that a society corrupt to the core and at this moment engaged in suppressing freedom. With just the same reckless brutality and blind ignorance as the Tsar of all the Russias uses. But it will be said, and certainly with much truth, that not all the Democrats are for mere political reform. I say that I believe that this is true, and it is a very important truth, too. I will go farther, and will say that all those Democrats who can be distinguished from Whigs do intend social reforms, which they hope will somewhat alter the relations of the classes towards each other. And there is, generally speaking, amongst Democrats a leaning towards a kind of limited state socialism. 
and it is through that that they hope to bring about a peaceful revolution which if it does not introduce a condition of equality will at least make the workers better off and contented with their lot they hope to get a body of representatives elected to parliament and by them to get measure after measure passed which will tend towards this goal nor would some of them perhaps most of them be discontented if by this means we could glide into complete state socialism i think that the present democrats are widely tinged with this idea and to me it is a matter of hope that it is so whatever of error there is in it it means advance beyond the complete barrenness of the mere political programme yet i must point out to these semi-socialist democrats that in the first place they will be made the cat's paw of some of the wilier of the whigs there are several of these measures which look to some socialistic as for instance the allotment scheme and other schemes tending towards peasant proprietorship cooperation and the like but which after all in spite of their benevolent appearance are really weapons in the hands of reactionaries having for their real object the creation of a new middle class made out of the working class and at their expense the raising in short of a new army against the attack of the disinherited there is no end to this kind of dodge nor will be apparently till there is an end of the class that tries it on and a great many of the democrats will be amused and absorbed by it from time to time they call this sort of nonsense practical it seems like doing something while the steady propaganda of a principle which must prevail in the end is according to them doing nothing and is unpractical for the rest it is not likely to become dangerous further than as it clogs the wheels of the real movement somewhat because it is sometimes a mere piece of reaction as when for instance it takes the form of peasant proprietorship flying right in the face of the commercial development of the day which tends ever more and more towards the aggregation of capital thereby smoothing the way for the organized possession of the means of production by the workers when the true revolution shall come while on the other hand when this attempt to manufacture a new middle class takes the form of cooperation and the like it is not dangerous because it means nothing more than a slightly altered form of joint stockery and everybody almost is beginning to see this the greed of men stimulated by the spectacle of profit-making all around them and also by the burden of the interest on the money which they have been obliged to borrow will not allow them even to approach a true system of cooperation those benefited by the transaction presently become eager shareholders in a commercial speculation and if they are working men as they often are they are also capitalists the enormous commercial success of the great cooperative societies and the absolute no effect of that success on the social conditions of the workers are sufficient tokens of what this non-political cooperation must come to nothing it shall not be less but again it may be said some of the democrats go farther than this they take up actual pieces of socialism and are more than inclined to support them nationalization of the land or of railways or cumulative taxation on incomes or limiting the right of inheritance or new factory laws or the restriction by law of the day's labour one of these or more than one sometimes the democrats will support and see absolute salvation in these one or two planks of the platform all this i admit and once again say it is a hopeful sign and yet once again i say there is a snare in it a snake lies lurking in the grass those who think that they can deal with our present system in this piecemeal way very much underrate the strength of the tremendous organization under which we live and which appoints to each of us his place and if we do not chance to fit it grinds us down till we do nothing but a tremendous force can deal with this force it will not suffer itself to be dismembered 
nor to lose anything which really is its essence without putting forth all its force in resistance. Rather than lose anything which it considers of importance, it will pull the roof of the world down upon its head. For indeed I grant these semi-socialist democrats that there is one hope for their tampering piecemeal with our society. If by chance they can excite people into seriously, however blindly, claiming one or other of these things in question, and could be successful in Parliament in driving it through, they would certainly draw on a great civil war, and such a war, once let loose, would not end but either with the full triumph of socialism or its extinction for the present. It would be impossible to limit the aim of the struggle, nor could we even guess at the course which it would take, except that it could not be a matter of compromise. But suppose the Democratic Party peaceably successful on this new basis of semi-state socialism. What would it all mean? Attempts to balance the two classes whose interests are opposed to each other, a mere ignoring of this antagonism which has led us through so many centuries to where we are now, and then, after a period of disappointment and disaster, the naked conflict once more, a revolution made, and another immediately necessary on its morrow. Yet, indeed, it will not come to that, for whatever may be the aims of the Democrats, they will not succeed in getting themselves into a position from whence they could make the attempt to realise them. I have said there are Tories and yet no real Tory party, so also it seems to me that there are Democrats but no Democratic party. At present they are used by the leaders of the parliamentary factions, and also kept at a distance by them from any real power. If they by hook or crook manage to get a number of members into Parliament, they would find out their differences very speedily under the influence of party rule. In point of fact, the Democrats are not a party, because they have no principles other than the old Whig radical ones, extended in some cases so as to take in a little semi-socialism, which the march of events has forced on them. That is, they gravitate on one side to the Whigs and on the other to the Socialists. Whenever, if ever, they begin to be a power in the elections and get members in the House, the temptation to be members of a real live party which may have the government of the country in its hands, the temptation to what is, facetiously I suppose, called practical politics, will be too much for many even of those who gravitate towards socialism. A quasi-democratic parliamentary party, therefore, would probably be merely a recruiting ground, a nursery for the left wing of the Whigs. Though it would indeed leave behind some small nucleus of opposition, the principles of which, however, would be vague and floating, so that it would be but a powerless group after all. The future of the constitutional parliament, therefore, it seems to me, is a perpetual Whig rump, which will yield to pressure when mere political reforms are attempted to be got out of it, but will be quite immovable towards any real change in social and economical matters. That is to say, so far as it may be conscious of the attack, for I grant that it may be betrayed into passing semi-state socialistic measures which will do this amount of good, that they will help to entangle commerce in difficulties, and so add to discontent by creating suffering, suffering of which the people will not understand the causes definitely, but which their instinct will tell them truly is brought about by government, and that, too, the only kind of government which they can have so long as the constitutional parliament lasts. Now, if you think I have exaggerated the power of the Whigs, that is, of solid, dead, unmoving resistance to progress, I must call your attention to the events of the last few weeks. Here has been a measure of pacification proposed, at the least and worst an attempt to enter upon a pacification of a weary and miserable quarrel many centuries old. The British people, in spite of their hereditary prejudice against the Irish, were not averse to the measure, 
The Tories were as usual powerless against it, yet so strong has been the vis inertiae of Whiggery that it has won a notable victory over common sense and sentiment combined, and has drawn over to it a section of those hitherto known as radicals, and probably would have drawn all radicals over but for the personal ascendancy of Mr. Gladstone. The Whigs, seeing if but dimly that this Irish independence meant an attack on property, have been successful in snatching the promised peace out of the people's hands and in preparing all kinds of entanglement and confusion for us for a long while in their steady resistance to even the beginnings of revolution this therefore is what parliament looks to me a solid central party with mere nebulous opposition on the right hand and on the left the people governed that is to say fair play amongst themselves for the money privileged classes to make the most of their privilege and to fight sturdily with each other in doing so but the government concealed as much as possible and also as long as possible that is to say the government resting on an assumed necessary eternity of privilege to monopolize the means of the fructification of labor for so long as that assumption is accepted by the ignorance of the people the great whig rump will remain inexpugnable but as soon as the people's eyes are opened even partially and they begin to understand the meaning of the words the emancipation of labor we shall begin to have an assured hope of throwing off the basest and most sordid tyranny which the world has yet seen, the tyranny of so-called constitutionalism. How, then, are the people's eyes to be opened? By the force evolved from the final triumph and consequent corruption of commercial wiggery, which force will include in it a recognition of its constructive activity by intelligent people on the one hand, and on the other half-blind instinctive struggles to use its destructive activity on the part of those who suffer and have not been allowed to think, and to boot a great deal that goes between those two extremes. In this turmoil all those who can be truly called socialists will be involved. The modern development of the great class struggle has forced us to think, our thoughts force us to speak, and our hopes force us to try to get a hearing from the people. Nor can one tell how far our words will carry, so to say, the most moderate exposition of our principles will bear with it the seeds of disruption, nor can we tell what form that disruption will take. One and all, then, we are responsible for the enunciation of socialist principles and of the consequences which may flow from their general acceptance, whatever that may be. This responsibility no socialist can shake off by declarations against physical force and in favour of constitutional methods of agitation, we are attacking the Constitution with the very beginnings, the mere lispings of socialism. Whiggery, therefore, in its various forms, is the representative of constitutionalism, is the outward expression of monopoly and consequent artificial restraints on labour and life. And there is only one expression of the force which will destroy Whiggery, and that is socialism. And on the right hand and on the left, Toryism and radicalism will melt into Whiggery, or doing so now and socialism has got to absorb all that is not Whig in radicalism. Then comes the question, what is the policy of socialism? If Toryism and democracy are only nebulous masses of opposition to the solid centre of Whiggery, what can we call socialism? Well, at present, in England at least, socialism is not a party but a sect. That is sometimes brought against it as a taunt, but I am not dismayed by it, for I can conceive of a sect, nay, I have heard of one becoming a very formidable power, and becoming so by dint of its long remaining a sect. So I think it is quite possible that socialism will remain a sect till the very eve of the last stroke that completes the revolution, after which it will melt into the new society. 
And is it not sects, bodies of definite, uncompromising principles, that lead us into revolutions? Was it not so in the Cromwellian times? Nay, have not the Fenian sect even in our own days made home rule possible? They may give birth to parties, though not parties themselves. And what should a sect, like we are, have to do in the parliamentary struggle? We, who have an ideal to keep always before ourselves and others, and who cannot accept compromise, who can see nothing that can give us rest for a minute save the emancipation of labour, which will be brought about by the workers gaining possession of all the means of the fructification of labour, and who, even when that is gained, shall have pure communism ahead to strive for. What are we to do, then? Stand by and look on? Not exactly. Yet we may look on other people doing their work while we do ours. They are already beginning, as I have said, to stumble about with attempts at state socialism. Let them make their experiments and blunders and prepare the way for us by so doing. And our own business? Well, we, sect or party or group of self-seekers, madmen and poets, which you will, are at least the only set of people who have been able to see that there is and has been a great class struggle going on. Further, we can see that this class struggle cannot come to an end till the classes themselves do. One class must absorb the other. Which, then? Surely the useful one, the one that the world lives by and on. The business of the people at present is to make it impossible for the useless, non-producing class to live, while the business of constitutionalism is, on the contrary, to make it possible for them to live. And our business is to help make the people conscious of this great antagonism between the people and constitutionalism, and meantime to let constitutionalism go on with its government, unhelped by us at least, until it at last becomes conscious of its burden of the people's hate, of the people's knowledge that it is disinherited, which we shall have done our best to further by any means that we could. As to socialists in Parliament, there are two words about that. If they go there to take a part in carrying on constitutionalism, by palliating the evils of the system and so helping our rulers to bear their burden of government, I for one, and so far as their action therein goes, cannot call them socialists at all. But if they go there with the intention of doing what they can towards the disruption of Parliament, that is a matter of tactics for the time being. But even here I cannot help seeing the danger of their being seduced from their true errand, and I fear that they might become, on the terms above mentioned, simply supporters of the very thing they set out to undo. I say that our work lies quite outside Parliament, and it is to help to educate the people by every and any means that may be effective. And the knowledge we have to help them to is threefold. To know their own, to know how to take their own, and to know how to use their own. End of section 3